There's an old story of King Lear that uh, William Shakespeare, as he was writing his play on the tragedy of King Lear, uh, picked up on and didn't go and put in uh, the fullness of the uh, particular detail, but that the original story is that King Lear, as he was uh, widowed and, or a widower, and uh, was approaching the ripe age of 80, decided it was time to divide his kingdom among his three daughters. And each daughter was going to get a share proportionate to the answer that they gave to the following question. How much do you love me? The first daughter waxed and waned eloquently, and I love you more than the sun and the moon and the, the stars and the night and all that stuff. And, and uh, the second daughter was likewise as eloquent as you could be, on and on, this flowery language that would choke the, or cause a diabetic coma to the, to the uh, most uh, insensitive person to, to uh, diabetes, perhaps. And the third youngest daughter, who was a little bit more practical, said, according to this first legend, I love you more than salt. Shakespeare doesn't give that little detail, but he's, he does have her say, I cannot heave my throat or my heart into my throat to speak how much I love you. It is my duty. And King Lear is incensed. He's angry because who would dare say, I love you something more than this crass element of salt? And so he expels her, kicks her out, and she's exiled. She goes to France where she is, uh, I believe, married and all those things, and, and she's comfortable there, but she knows something's going to happen. Her sisters, in the meantime, deposed their father. All their flowery language meant nothing to them. They cast him out of the castle, and there he is wandering the countryside. And eventually he finds his way to his youngest daughter's castle. There she takes him in with love and serves him a meal. With one exception. She told the chef not to season anything. And so as he takes his first bites, he says, this does not taste right. It needs something. Yes, she goes, it needs a little bit of salt. And suddenly he realized what she had said and why she had said it. It seems so little, this, this concept of salt, but it, how necessary it is. For those on a low-salt diet, we, we know we try to find anything and everything to give our food a little flavor, to bring that flavor out. So we try, try all, we sound almost like witches. We try this herb and that herb and a little bit of this and a little bit of that to make it taste better. But nothing makes it taste as good as a little bit of salt. Just a little pinch. We, in our modern age, except for those who have low-sodium diets, forget how important salt was to the ancient world. A number of years ago, I received a book uh, a gift, as a gift. The person that gave it had uh, no longer, but he had, at the time, worked at a bookstore. And he found this book that he knew was perfect for me. And he's smiling ear to ear, and I opened it up. And it's, I forget the name of the book, but it was basically the history of salt. Now, you would think that would be a relatively short book, but this book was 300 pages. And one of the points that this author made is how important salt was in the ancient world, that especially as you get further from the seas and further from the natural salt deposits that, 
that, uh, uh, sorry, but sees in the world, the more important it is and the more expensive salt is. Salt was so important, especially to the Romans, that they gave a piece of salt to each of their soldiers as part of their monthly wages. In fact, that's why we call it salary. It comes from the root word of salt. That salt at one time, in some places, was almost worth its weight in gold. Can you imagine? Something so natural, something so... prevalent in our society, not so in the ancient society. So when Jesus tells his disciples, you are salt of the earth, he seems something rather important. Not, not only that we're valuable and, and all those things, but how important is salt to bringing flavor? And not just salt as a preservative so often and uh, think about some of my favorite foods, of pickles and sauerkraut and all those things. You know, salt helps, helps balance it out. But even, even more so, as I was learning to bake, I once asked, well, Mom, why are we putting salt in bread? That seems, it doesn't seem right that you're putting salt in bread. First of all, salt brings out the flavor. But the other thing that salt does in bread, when we looked it up, is salt of, or bread is of course is raised by yeast at least the good bread is there's quick breads that are baking soda or baking powder but the yeast bread if you don't put something that will control the growth of the yeast it would just overgrow it will be all bubbles and fluff if you put a little salt in salt will help hinder the overgrowth of yeast, allowing it to kind of grow and mature the way it should be, but it helps it stay stable. Salt is not only a flavor enhancer, therefore, but a preservative, too. In fact, St. Luke's Gospel in this very passage says if it loses its taste, throw it on the dung heap. And why the dung heap? Farmers, if you have a lot of dung sitting around, you can try this trick and see if it works. But apparently salt helps keep down the bacteria, killing the bacteria and deadening some of the smell. Here, St. Matthew records it, with what can it be seasoned? It's no longer good for anything to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. And for us in Minnesota during this time of year, that's a good thing, right? But they weren't using it to uh, melt the ice because it was so expensive. They would never have thought about that. But think about what Jesus is saying. Salt is a chemical. Sodium chloride most of the time, potassium chloride. There's others, other salts that are uh, um, important, but not, uh, maybe not as common that we, we might know. But sodium chloride. It is what it is. It, it's, it's chemical structure is there. It's, it's, it's qualities are there. Salt cannot lose its saltiness. But if it did, if it ceased to be what it's supposed to be, it's worth nothing. It's not worth what it's supposed to be. If we are salt of the earth, therefore, our Lord is telling us that if we cease to be who we are called to be, we are nothing. And who are we called to be? We are called to be his children. And St. John tells us in his letter, we are God's children now. What we are yet to be is yet to be revealed, but we are God's children now. 
We are God's children. We're called to be God's children, to help enhance the world, to help preserve the world for the better. Jesus goes on and tells us we are light, light of the world. In John's Gospel, and we heard that as our Alleluia verse, he says, I am the light of the world. But here, it's us. As part of the body of Christ, we are light of the world. We are the city set on a mountaintop that cannot be hidden. We are that lamp that is lit that should not be put under a bushel basket. Imagine, if you will, we're not talking a light bulb under a bushel basket. We're talking, if you want to, it's easier to imagine in our modern age, a candle. How many of us would light a candle and promptly put a bushel basket over it to hide its light? If they did this with a lamp, uh, oil lamp in the ancient world, put a bushel basket over it, they would have not extinguished the light, but most likely spread the light as the bushel basket started on fire. It would light, bring light to the whole house. Unfortunately, the whole house might have burned down in the meantime. You don't light a lamp and then hide the light. And Jesus is telling that to us. He has enlightened us. We are not to hide that light. If we do, it's silly. A number of years ago, I read an article that, that uh, on this particular passage that said, we as Christians ought to be radioactive. I found myself reflecting on that, and I wish I would have kept the article because it was so brilliantly written. But we are called to be radioactive. Who uh, watched a little video about uh, the, the uh, Russian former KGB, I believe it was, agent who was poisoned by polonium, a very radioactive, rare substance. Everywhere he went, and everywhere those that are suspected of murdering him went, there were pieces of radioactivity that you could find in the teacup, on the napkin, in the teapot, in the hotel. If we are called to be radioactive, we are called to light and to glow, and everyone we touch, therefore, becomes enlightened and glows a little bit more. Think about this. Maybe we put these, the salt and light together and we use the image of radioactive iodine. Doctors will give it to help test the thyroid. You can find it on, uh, on uh, certain uh, tests of where that iodine goes. That's why they use it. We are called to be salt and light. Maybe iodine, iodine, radioactive iodine in our salt. We are called to be God's children, to bring light to the world. Despite what we hear and elsewhere in Matthew's Gospel, he tells us when you give alms, do not let your left hand know what you're doing, or when you pray, do not uh, stand in the, synagogue, or in, the, in the synagogue or in the street corner, but rather into your inner room, and when you fast, do not uh, make yourself look like you're fasting, but rather fast in secret. Here, Jesus tells us that our light must shine before others, and that there is no contradiction here. Those that do things to be seen, just simply to be seen, receive their reward. But here we're not doing it to be seen, that, that people look at us and say, ooh, there goes a good person. But rather we're doing it because it's the right thing. We're doing it because we know by doing it, we give glory to God. And that others may see what we do, 
not giving glory to us, but glory to God as well. That by seeing us, they become a little bit more radioactive themselves. That they would glorify God, saying, what is it about this person that they can be so flavor-enhancing of the world? What is it about this person that I can see a little bit more clearly what God the Father wants me to do? It's not about us. It's all about Jesus. I, last night after the flurry of fun, I, I, as I was driving home, it's like, I wonder, why do they call it salty language? We, we use that word salty as if it's a bad thing. And, and uh, certainly the way that that phrase began was kind of salty. Sailors who used every, uh, uh, every word in the book were accused of having salty language. But here this morning, I want to give you permission to be a little salty this week. Not in the bad language, but rather to be the salt that this world needs. To enhance the world by bringing the world knowledge of Jesus Christ. It's okay to be salty. It's good to be salty.